if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Uh, as we conclude chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4, uh, verses uh, 43 to the end of the chapter. Uh, if you would, if you're able, would you please stand as we give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his, hometown, in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water, in, what made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to, her, said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and, and, and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, praise to you in adoration. Grant that we, your word, may trust and obtain true consolation. Through Christ and for his sake we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm rereading The Hobbit, um, which worked out perfectly in God's providence because I noticed that at the beginning of The Hobbit, uh, Bilbo Baggins is perfectly content in his hole in the ground. Uh, he's not interested in an adventure. He's not interested in going anywhere. And uh, he's not real interested in what Gandalf comes to offer him. He's, uh, in fact, sort of sitting outside his door, outside his hole, smoking his pipe when Gandalf shows up. And in, and in Bilbo's mind, this is just some stranger. He doesn't know that it's Gandalf. He doesn't know who this uh, wizard is who just showed up at his door. In fact, he even says as much as they're talking back and forth. He, he said, I don't, I don't know your name. And Gandalf's response was, well, something like, well, you do. You just don't remember that I belong to it. You know that I'm Gandalf. You know that I'm the, the wizard that used to come around the midsummer parties and set off fireworks and do all that cool stuff. And, and at that, Bilbo sort of perks up a little bit. You're the one that was, I remember those parties. I remember 
the, the big birthday parties and bashes and the midsummer events and all those times when you would come around and set off these great fireworks and we as young hobbits would love to watch and love to see and love to see all the things that you could do. Bilbo, as it turns out, knew Gandalf, but only sort of. He knew him incompletely. He knew him only partially. And, and in fact, the reality is he didn't care about Gandalf. He just cared about what Gandalf could do. Isn't that how many of us approach Jesus? That's the context here. We, we come to Jesus and the reality is we frequently kind of want, well, we want the cool stuff that he can do. We don't really care about him. We want the fireworks. We want make the dragon. We want that stuff. We don't really care about him. And, and that's exactly what plays out in our passage this morning. People want to approach Jesus on their terms rather than his. People want to come to Jesus for the things that, they, that he can do for them, not for who he is. And so we watch that unfold before us at the end of John 4. Jesus returns to Galilee. He's from there. He's from Nazareth, which is a town in the region of Galilee. Uh, Cana is also there in Galilee. Um, the place where, in case you don't remember, John reminded you, oh yeah, that's the place where he turned water into wine. Capernaum is another town down on the Sea of Galilee, kind of down the hill from Cana, another town in that region. And, and you notice, just to sort of make this observation for you, just to equip you yet again, uh, you'll notice that like four times in verses 43 to 47, John mentions Galilee and then throws in the Galileans in verse 45 and those, of course, are people who are from Galilee. Uh, I've told you before, when you're reading the Bible and you see something repeated a bunch in a short span, it probably matters. It's probably important. And so you should kind of take note and, and pay attention to that. Well, John's kind of flashing a sign. Jesus is going back home. He's going back to his people. Like, right? these, are, these are his people. He's from Nazareth. He's been in Cana. And in fact, if you recall, I even alluded to the possibility. The passage doesn't tell us this. This is kind of making connections and, and reading into things going on. I even alluded to the possibility that the wedding in Cana was somehow related to Mary. That Mary may have been a, a relative of the groom. Because she seems to have some authority, some influence in how the wedding feast, the wedding party plays out. And so John wants to remind you, Jesus is going home. There's just one problem with that. And that problem we read in verse 44. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. Jesus has said it according to verse 44. And will say it again a slightly different way later, according to the other gospel writers. But Jesus is going home where a prophet apparently has no honor. 
and already we're faced with a question. Because verse 45 seems to suggest something different. A prophet has no honor in his hometown, verse 44. The people of Galilee were were happy to see Jesus, verse 45. They received him, verse 45. Those two things don't seem... And in fact, oddly enough, verse 45 starts with a so or a therefore. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. Therefore, the people in Galilee were happy to see Jesus. And you're thinking, what? How, how do those two things fit together? How does that work? Well, I think it's like this. Jesus just came from Samaria. You know Samaria. According to Jewish people, those half-breeds. They're, they're descended from intermarriages left over in the northern kingdom after Assyria came and conquered Israel in the north and scattered the people. Some of the people that remained behind intermarried with Assyrians, foreigners, other foreigners that Assyria deposited in Israel for the purpose of mixing them all up. They've, they've married outsiders. They've married foreigners who are, are idolaters. And in Samaria, Jesus reaped a harvest of converts, starting with an immoral woman. And as you read, if you go back and start in, in John 1 and read to here again, Count the Jewish converts, the the fully Jewish converts that we've seen so far. It isn't many. The disciples who were pointed to Jesus by John the Baptist. um, Even at the wedding in Cana, there's no express and therefore people believed the gospel. And so there seems to be this contrast established between how the people outside of pure Judaism have received Jesus as the Messiah and how the people within Galilee, within Judea, within pure Jewish areas have received him. And the reality is, he's been rejected. That's that's how John began his gospel, right? He came to his own and his own did not receive him, didn't welcome him. They didn't embrace him. And so John's actually writing ironically here. A prophet has no honor in his own hometown. In fact, the people of Galilee, did you notice why they received him? Because of all the cool stuff he can do at parties. They're there for the party tricks. They're there for the signs and wonders. They're there for the cool things he can do. They welcomed him. Why? Because they have seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. You know, Bilbo wasn't really excited about an adventure. And in fact, was kind of annoyed that somebody stopped on his front stoop to have a conversation with him when all he wanted was a little peace and quiet. 
But he was glad to have a wizard who could perform fireworks. Who could make dragons and flashes of light and pops of sound at a moment. That seems, at least initially, to be what's going on in the minds of the Galileans and possibly even in the mind of this official. Notice verse 46. There's an official that comes. He hears that Jesus is there and he comes to see him. Uh, This word official, he's a, a royal officer. He's employed by, presumably, Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch. Son of Herod the Great, um, and Herod the Great's kingdom was split among four people, and so Herod and Herod Antipas and Tipas, I don't know how to pronounce it. I make it up every time. It's kind of you know like a fourth of a king. He's kind of ruler over kind of a fourth of what had been Herod the Great's territory. We don't know his name. We, we don't even know if he's a Jew or a Gentile. We never actually find that out. It's not explicitly clear, not explicitly stated. And you notice when he came to Jesus, what he wanted was for Jesus to make the trip down the hill to Capernaum in order to heal his son who was about to die. Seems reasonable, right? I mean, how on earth could any one of us in the room think, what's wrong with that? I mean, don't we pray for people who are about to have surgery? Don't we pray for people who are... Haven't we prayed for people who are battling cancer? And sickness and disease of all sorts and shapes and sizes? This seems perfectly, completely reasonable to us. He he wants Jesus to come and heal his son. His son's about to die. He's... On death's door, literally at the point of death, verse 47. And so we think that sounds perfectly normal. We think that sounds perfectly reasonable. And then we read verse 48 and think, well, now hold on a second. Did Jesus just rebuke this man? Well, kind of. But again, If we had a southern standard version, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. The yous in verse 47 are plural. He's not talking just to this man. He's talking to Galileans in general. You're all alike. Y'all are all here. You're glad for me to be here. You welcome me. Only because you care about signs and wonders. Miracles. Things that he has done. Think about those two words for a second. What is a sign? A sign is not the thing. Right? I've got a picture that goes by on our computer sometimes. Well, when we can get our computer to work. It's a picture of a little small wooden sign. It says Water Dog Lake. A hike we did in Colorado years ago. Here's the thing. You can jump in that sign or on that sign and you won't get wet. Because it's not the lake. It just tells you where the lake is. It's a sign because it's not the thing. It points to the thing. 
These people want the signs. They don't want the thing. They don't want the one to whom the signs point. And for that matter, a a wonder, really, it's the same thing. I mean, Jesus says signs and wonders. Those aren't two different things. Those are the miracles that he performs. They are signs to him. And wonder really is your reaction to it. Ooh, ah. Like watching fireworks at a midsummer party. They want those things. They want the miracles. They want the things that Jesus can do for them. They don't care one whit for Jesus himself. That's the rebuke. Not not just of this man, but of the Galileans who want the signs and wonders. They want the miracles without the Messiah. They want blessing without belonging. They want reward without relationship. And that's what they're guilty of. Is that you? Do you kind of find yourself frequently thinking... I mean, yeah, I've got a relationship with Jesus. And really what that means is I can go and treat him like um, uh, uh, some sort of cosmic drink machine, cosmic dispenser. What are those things called? You know what I'm talking about. You you just push the button and out comes the thing you want, right? You pull the lever and you get the thing you want. Do we want the gifts, but not really so much the giver? Are you looking for Jesus to fit into your conception of what he should look like and be like and how he should act? Or are you coming to him as he is and as he is revealed in his word to us and embracing him there? Keep in mind, Jesus Jesus isn't criticizing signs and wonders in general because you read at the end of the passage, this healing of this boy was the second sign. John's, John's writing a whole series. In fact, the first like 12, I forget what the number is now off the top of my head, 12 chapters or so of his gospel, people call the book of signs because you, there, there's over and over and over again, these series of signs of who Jesus is that are intended to point to him as The Messiah as the one who fulfills all that the Old Testament anticipated. He's rebuking belief founded on the sign and not the one to whom the sign points. But this official didn't stop. Like his rebuke didn't make the official go, okay, drop his hands, hang his head, walk away in sorrow and dejection. No, instead, it affected how he responded to Jesus. Notice verse 49, how this official responds. Like, literally, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This is the official's response, sir. Come down before my child dies. Three things I want you to kind of notice about that verse that sort of stand out about that verse. The first is that this man assumes near death is not a problem for Jesus. Real death is. Right? He's, there's this implication you have to hurry while he's still alive. 
I know he's almost dead, but that's not a problem for you. However, if you dawdle, if you take too long and he dies before you get there, then there's nothing you can do. That's implied in his statement. We, of course, know better. We, of course, know that Jesus will raise people from the dead and, in fact, himself will defeat death itself for this official and his household. Jesus has plenty of authority over earthly, the, the earthly created order because he made it. That was our Old Testament. That is why you got the first three verses of Genesis 1 for our Old Testament reading. Let there be light and there was light. Jesus has power and authority over all the created order because he made it simply by speaking his word brought into existence all that is. So, of course, Jesus can heal the sick. He has power and authority over it. This man assumes that once his son dies, it will be too late. There's a second thing to notice in his words in verse 49. Uh, how does Jesus, how does the official address Jesus in verse 49? He uses the word sir or Lord. It's actually the, the Greek word Lord, but it's not the converted Lord. It's not the I'm a Christian Lord. It's not that it's it's a generic term for master. Here's the point. An official inherited the Tetrarch's employment. Recognized the authority of Jesus over himself. He. He made himself the inferior and Jesus the superior. He recognized, you are the greater, I am the lesser. Sir, come down before he dies. He recognizes Jesus' authority. And then the third thing to notice that sort of stands out in his reply. In verse 47, um, uh, John uses the generic Greek word for son here, the father uses a father word. My little boy, my child, my young one. It's not necessarily young and it's not necessarily an age comment or a size comment. The point is the father's love for his son. This is my son. I love him dearly. Would you come and heal him? Come before my little boy dies. It sounds like Jesus' rebuke of the Galileans has had an effect on this man. He's different. He's changed. This royal official has, has changed his tune and his tone. Okay, sure, he's still saying come down, right? The, the implication is that if you aren't there, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. He still thinks you have to be in the room to heal my son. So you have to come with me. You have to go. We have to we have to walk. You have to because you can't do it from here. Right. So he he lacks knowledge. He lacks understanding. But his his tune and his tone have changed. 
And the reality is, for this father, his focus isn't on signs and wonders. It's on his son. And with that, Jesus responds in verse 50. Go, your son lives. One sentence, two sentences, it's a semicolon in English. I don't know. I was a math major, I don't know. But in that one statement, Jesus commanded two entities. He just told this royal official what to do. Go. Go back home. Be on your way. He, he exercised that authority, uh, that role of authority and that position of, of authority over this man. And at the same time, he rebuked the son's sickness. Because you, you find out later that it was exactly this hour at one o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday. I, I doesn't say Tuesday. Humor me. That Jesus, it's exactly when Jesus said those words to this man, the fever stopped, his breathing was more regular, it was deeper. The people in the room surely were amazed, surprised. You, you got to figure that they didn't know what to, what, suddenly he's better. Of course, they have no explanation for it other than this boy's getting well. In a, in a, all of a sudden, in a, in a moment, his cough went away, the heart rate stabilized, everything went back to normal. Jesus never left Cana. I, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I, one guy said it's 16 miles. I, another guy said it's 18 miles. A couple other places said it was 25 miles. I don't know how far it was, apparently. I'm not even going to venture a guess. Right? The, the point is, Jesus didn't move. He didn't, he didn't walk down the... I do know it's down the hill. He didn't walk to Capernaum. He didn't go with... He just simply from there said, He's well. He lives. He exercised His power and authority over sickness and disease in that boy's life from... Some distance more than 15 miles. Right? Which means the reality is it could have been 150 miles. It could have been 1,500 miles. It didn't matter. Jesus had the, the power and authority to heal that boy simply by saying it to be so. Because notice the father's response. Now, here's the thing. You and I can very quickly read from verse 50, uh, 50 to verse 54 and lose track of time lapse. You and I read from verse 50 to 54 and we go, okay, the boy was healed. Everything's better. Boom. There's the sign. And then we read, there's the second sign. Put yourself in the father's shoes for a minute. Go, your son lives. What was the father's response? He went. 
What did he have? He didn't have signs. He didn't have wonders. He didn't have fireworks. He didn't have you know, angels that suddenly appeared. He didn't have a flash of lightning. He didn't have any of that sort of stuff that we kind of go, well, if, if, if only God would give me a sign, then I would believe. He had none of that. He had the word of the word. He had the promise of the word of God. And he said, I'm going home. It's done. He's he's done what he said he would do. No signs, no wonders, just the word of the word of God. Isn't that the essence of faith? Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11.1? Right? That faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, hearing the promise of God and being so assured, so confident in it, of it, that we move. And all the rest of Hebrews 11 unfolds that reality for us. In the Old Testament saints, this man adding to the list of Hebrews 11. He had a conviction and assurance of something he couldn't see. And he went home. Confident in the promise of Christ. And he's not the only one that benefits because in verse 53, his whole household comes to saving faith in Christ. And we could have a whole conversation about God's covenant promises and covenant faithfulness, but we'll save that for another day. The question is, are we taking Jesus at his word? Are we, are we that confident in the promises of Christ? Are we receiving Jesus as he's offered in the gospel? Are we trying to mold him and shape him into something, someone that we think he should be or to fit our definition of what we want from him who magically dispenses treats that we want regardless of our response to him. (coughs) This man's been converted Because the word of God has done exactly what God says his word will do. What are the outward and ordinary means of grace as we affirmed our faith not just a few minutes ago? The word, sacraments, prayer. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage to us. Uh, The first is this passage rebukes our demand for something more than God's word. When we come to him and say, okay, your word is all fine and good, but what we really need is some lightning, some thunder, some fireworks, some angels, uh, a trumpet, uh, something, anything. We, We need signs and wonders. What we really need is not your word. Your word is not enough, God. What we need is something more. This passage rebukes that command. It rebukes that that response of, I'd believe if only he would do this or make those chairs move or, or, I don't know, wiggle some stuff in this room. Look, that's why we make a big deal about the Bible here at Grace Covenant. 
That's why we sort of make a big deal about studying his word and preaching his word is because God has promised, as we affirmed our faith just a few minutes ago, to use his word to convince unbelievers of their need for Christ and to strengthen his saints to serve and honor and glorify him. A second application. Uh, I've made it before and will make it again and will not apologize for it. This passage is just yet another affirmation that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because if you go back, here's your Sunday afternoon assignment. Go back to John 1.1. Read to the end of John 4. Check out the people who get converted. Fishermen. An immoral woman. A, a servant of Herod the Tetrarch. And depending on what happens to Nicodemus. Who actually is Jewish. And a Pharisee. And has some clout in the ideas. In the minds of the Jewish people. The point is. There is no one. More or less worthy. Of the gospel. Than anyone else. There's no one so good that they don't need it, so bad that they can't be changed by it. The gospel is for everyone. Salvation is by grace and not by merit. Salvation is by God's grace and not by our works. If you aren't trusting in Christ this morning, come to him today. And then a third and final application is a, an implication in Jesus' words in verse 48. The father asks, come heal my son. The response is a spiritual response. The implication is this. Cancer might be a big deal. But it isn't the biggest deal. Your son may die. But that's not the worst, most dangerous thing that can happen. More important is spiritual healing than physical healing. Jesus' response to a physical request is a spiritual response. The greater need is, so what if cancer takes the life of a believer? That's far better than being delivered from cancer and never trusting in Christ. Because the reality is, death will eventually take us. And our hope isn't freedom from the first death. Freedom from the bodily death that Jesus also endured in our place. Our hope is freedom from the second death. Spiritual death, eternal death, because Christ has defeated all that sin can throw at him, all that Satan would accuse us of, Christ has conquered. Which means you can trust his word. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you have given your word that our salvation is not by our merit. And the reality is we look at our lives and we know that to be true. We testify to our own guilt, our own shame, our own cosmic treason. 
that we are unworthy of the salvation we've received in Christ. And so it must, therefore, be all of grace. Would you use us to take that word, that promise, that guarantee wherever we go? Would you use us to gather your saints into the church? And we pray that you, by your word, would strengthen and encourage our trust in Christ. For his honor and his glory, we ask it. Amen.